Good evening, everybody. So as you uh, take your seats, if you want to reach in and grab your Bibles or open your iPad, however you're doing it. Wonderful. Well, if you're taking notes tonight, tonight is entitled, The Hallmarks of a Spirit-Filled Church. Hallmarks of a Spirit-Filled Church. And if you've got your Bibles, let's go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read the first 10 verses. And obviously, when we're speaking about a spirit-filled church, we're speaking about a spirit-filled people. People make up the church. All right, is this coming through loud and clear? All right, fantastic. All right, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to go from verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. What a phenomenal testimony for a local church that your faith in God has become known everywhere. And one of the things that Paul says when he writes this letter is he says, you've become a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, but not just there, to everyone. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. All right, let's go to the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts 17 and we'll see how this church is actually started. Acts chapter 17. Verse 1 says this, when they passed through Amphilius, and Amponia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. For a church that's three weeks old, that's not exactly what you're thinking on your third Sunday is going to be a great way to start this local church. In fact, the way this whole thing comes together really puts to one side some of the stuff that we see today that you've got to have three months of a soft start and then you get a, a medium start and then you have a proper start and if that works for you that's great but that's not how this church was started this church was birthed over three weeks over three sabbaths it was birthed and on that some people got jealous how many of you have ever met a bad character how many of you have ever seen a mob how many of you have ever been in a riot we heard about Chris this morning who used to be a bad character. 
This is not just some small little, well, you know, we're unhappy with you here. We don't like you being here. This was a mob that had risen up to create a riot to try and extinguish a church that was only three weeks old. Listen to what happens. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Let me give you a couple of things quickly about this church before we get into the main part of what we're going to share tonight. This church was pioneered in word and power. This church was sustained by the Holy Spirit. Paul was there three weeks and then had to go. Who was looking after the church? It was sustained by the Holy Spirit. This church became a powerhouse in the city, reaching the unsaved. It became a generous church filled with joy. It was heavily persecuted. It wasn't perfect. Paul had to deal with some doctrinal issues in this church. And the exciting thing is you don't have to be perfect to be used in, in the power of God. Yes, there's holiness. Yes, there's living a righteous life. But you can't wait for everything to be in absolute order. Every, every I dotted, every T crossed before you're going to start to do something for God. God will take you as you are, use you as you are, grow you and mature you and give you greater spheres of influence. But don't wait for some level of perfection. Get connected with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with His power and start to move in the realms that He's called you to. This church became a model to other churches, including to us today. All right, go with me to Acts chapter 1. Let's look at some of what happens as the Holy Spirit moves in the early church. And then we'll pull out some specifics for this church, and then we're going to pray. Famous verse we all know so well, Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive what? You will receive power. One of the things we've got to stop doing, and I'm not saying we're doing it here, but you see it around the world, is we've got to stop apologizing for a powerless gospel. And instead of apologizing for a powerless gospel, we've got to contend for a gospel that's powerful. Because when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're meant to receive power. And I've seen too many people in too many services come up and it's, well, we're going to see you baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and then we're all going to stand around you and we're going to pray and then you just pray what we're praying and then you go back and you sit in your seat and you wonder, did they even get any power? You're meant to have power as a believer. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All right, then we go to Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn over. Another famous verse that we know so well. I'm going somewhere with this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Something happens when believers get together in one place. 
I know there's been COVID and there's been shutdowns and lockdowns, but some of you need to get back into your local churches and not two Sundays a month. You need to get back in whenever the doors are open because God does something powerful when the believers come together in one place. Then it says in verse 2, suddenly, and this is what's going to happen for some of you tonight, it's going to be suddenly, suddenly something's going to happen. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now I know God can speak in the gentle breeze, but on the day of Pentecost, it was not a gentle breeze. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and rested on each of them, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. As we've heard this week, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not some kind of force. He is God. He's not even a subject to be studied. He's a person of the Godhead that we're meant to know that we're meant to fellowship with. He is not less than the Son or less than the Father. They are co-equal, all God, different roles, different responsibilities. But I want to say this, if you reject the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting God Himself. He is God. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 8 says this. Then Peter, listen to the words again, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we've been called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed." goes on in verse 13, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. When I was a younger Christian, I loved to debate. And I think there's time for debates, and I think there's time for apologetics, but I really feel what God wants across Australia and wants across New Zealand and in some of our, quote, first world nations is no longer for us to debate, but for the church to rise up in its God-given power and to begin to see miracle signs and wonders take place because a lot of that ends the debate. Often when we debate people, there's a strong contest and you walk out believing what you believe, they walk out believing what they believe, but what stunned them in this passage was the man was healed. What can you say about that? (laughs) Acts chapter 5, this is where it gets very, very interesting. Ananias and Sapphira. It says this, they were meant to bring, and amazing, it was over an offering. And without getting too technical, I think if they had been honest, because everybody was selling and putting their gifts at the apostles' feet, and they made like they had given everything, but they kept some for themselves, I think if they had been honest and said, we brought half, maybe they would have lived a little bit longer, but they lied, and they dropped dead. And it's interesting what's said. It says this, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to who? To the Holy Spirit. And you kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. 
Think about that if this started happening today. Now, we're not going to build a theology around this. And I think one of the things we've got to know with the book of Acts is we're seeing some of the amazing things that happen, but there's also the ordinary. There's also the living everyday life. There's also being a mom and a dad and taking your kids to school. But we should never allow that to dial down the opportunity for us to rise up and believe and continue to tend for the power of God. Imagine someone lied in your church on a Sunday and dropped dead. How would that change your service? You might have to change the way you do your ushering training. Chapter 8. How to deal with people who lie and drop dead in a service. Here's the four steps. The point being, church is meant to be exciting when the believers gather together. The church empowered by the Holy Spirit was incredibly exciting. The Holy Spirit is not just a subject to be studied. He is a person of the Godhead to be known and experienced. And when the Bible speaks about knowing God, it speaks about knowing God through experience. There's a lot of people who know of God, a lot of unsaved people who know of God. The question is not, do you know of God? The question is not even, can you quote 50 verses? The question is, do you know Him personally? Because sadly, in some places, the Trinity has become the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. And I'm all for the Word. Jesus is the Word. I'm not minimizing the Word. But I think what God's wanting to say to us is the Holy Spirit is God and is wanting to be alive and active in His church. And He is alive and active, but He's waiting for us to wake up to what He's wanting to do and for us to grow in increasing measure with what He's wanting to do. As the age-old saying goes, if you just have the Word, you dry up. If you have the Spirit only, you blow up. If you have the Word and the Spirit, you will grow up. And I don't know why we have to choose between one or the other. Why can't we have both? You can actually have it all. You can have the Word. You can have the power of God. And you can live with your feet on the ground where you're not becoming a fruit loop. Because so many people are doing so many things in the name of the Holy Spirit, but it's not winning anybody to Christ. It's not changing any lives. It's just isolating you into a corner where where you've now got no friends and you think, well, I'm just going to be me and Jesus and it's just me and Jesus. No, no, you've just been crazy and weird. And we we know that Jesus did radical stuff. So I'm not speaking about not being radical. We need to be radical. Jesus did radical things. He cast demons out of a man into a herd of pigs. And the pigs went down the hill and buried themselves into a lake and all died belly up in the lake. That's pretty radical. And people have asked over the years, why? Why did the pigs kill themselves? Even a pig is smart enough to know it doesn't want a demon. And that wouldn't have got Jesus elected to the board of the SPCA that year either. A man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about Pentecost. Tyron quoted from uh, G. Campbell Morgan, um, I think it was last night, and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones took over from G. Campbell Morgan at Westminster Chapel and led it for another 30 years, and actually the week before he was coming into the position was when the Second World War broke out. Imagine taking on a church in that season. This is what he said about the day of Pentecost. 
He said, at this time, the church is given great assurance concerning the truth. She does not have to investigate the truth or set up a commission to look into it. She's given an absolute certainty about it. That's the thing that comes out so clearly in the story of Acts. Take these men, these apostles. Remember how a few weeks before, after the crucifixion, they were shaken and most uncertain. They had come to a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had come to see that He was the Messiah, but then He was crucified. They were shattered and confused in their minds. You'll find in the last chapter of John's Gospel that they were talking to one another when Peter suddenly said, I'll go fishing. I must do something to relieve this. It's far too miserable. It is impossible. And the other said, we'll go with you. You cannot imagine a more dejected picture. They were shaken and uncertain about everything, and then the Lord appeared to them, and He taught them, and yes, this certainly put them in a better condition, but it was only after what happened to them on the day of Pentecost that they were filled with assurance and understanding and immediately began to speak to the people about the wonderful works of God. Never again was there any doubt. Never again was there any difficulty about understanding. Take Peter himself. Look at the sermon he preached on that occasion. He was absolutely certain and he was absolutely assured. There's an assurance that comes to the church when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I can remember years ago, someone coming to me, they joined our church and they heard us speaking in tongues and, and we believed in the gifts of the Spirit and they took me for coffee and they gave me a book why the gifts and why tongues are not for today. And I remember looking at the book and just pushing it across the table and my words to him where I said, you've come far too late because I've been speaking in tongues far too long, seen far too many miracles and seen far too many of the gifts of the Spirit in operation. You can't tell me it's not for today. And now, years later, people have given me books like that and I do something a little different and you may not think this is very pastoral, but now I actually take the book and then I bin it because I just think I don't even want to give it back because they're going to just pass it on to someone else. We don't want anyone else knowing that. We want people to know that the gifts are for today, that it's alive for today, that it's happening in the church today. All right, some hallmarks of a spiritful church. Number one. The leaders are baptized in the Holy Spirit and they live that out daily. Galatians 5, 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. The leaders of churches have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 5, 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Let me just say this. What does getting drunk on wine lead to? And people always want to dice, and I'm not going to put a heavy on anyone tonight, but how drunk is drunk? How many do you have to have before you consider drunk? So what, what Paul is saying here is he says, when you drink too much, you lose your inhibitions. You become something else. You, 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 I mean, if you've ever, like me, before you got saved, you knew what it was like after you got drunk. Suddenly everybody was your friend. And if you're a quiet person, suddenly you become a loud person. And Paul's saying if you drink wine, that's what's going to happen. It's going to lead to debauchery. But he says this, instead of that, be filled with the Spirit. In other words... If you drink too much wine, you come under its influence and you do different things. 
He's saying, don't do that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Come under His influence, and He will show you the things you need to do. You become more of who God has made you to be, and you step out, and there's a new level of boldness that comes on your life. You speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some questions to ask yourself as a leader today. Number one, do the people in your church you lead know about the Holy Spirit? And people say, well, Cliff, this is an equip. This is 101. Do they know about the Holy Spirit? When last did you talk about the Holy Spirit? When last did you teach? When last did you open the Scriptures? Second question. Are you and your leaders baptized in the Holy Spirit in the church you're in? You will be shocked. I've been shocked at some churches I've been to, and you give a call, and people that are leaders in the church have never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you're here tonight, that's not to put a heavy on you. That's to say, we're going to change that tonight. Tonight's the night that's going to change. And you're going to get filled with the Spirit tonight. The book of Acts tells us one place where Peter was preaching. While he was preaching, while he was in the middle of his message, the Holy Spirit fell on people. It should be, you know, as, as has been said here, we've got all the classes where you've got to have eight weeks water baptism and then you'll do another four weeks on, on Holy Spirit baptism. How about you just read the Bible, believe the Bible and say, I haven't done that yet, I'd like to do that tonight. Get filled with the Holy Spirit, get set on fire, get some power in your life and start to do what God's called you to do. Third question. When last was the evidence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your life personally and in your church gatherings, whether that's a home group, whether that's a Sunday, whatever it's going to look like, when last was there evidence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? The second hallmark, this was a church that was built on the word with signs and wonders following. There's two words that are used there. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he writes to them and he says, I didn't come with word only. The word there is logos. It's the full depth and breadth of scripture. He says, but I came with power, which is the word dunamis, the dynamite miraculous power of God. It needs to be both and not diluted. We don't dilute the word and we don't dilute the power. And it's the power as we see in the ministry of Jesus and with the book of Acts. Preach with boldness. And I'm not talking about deliberately being brash and offending people, but we have to preach on the power of God. And if it does offend some people because they want a nice, clean, cookie-cut church, then so be it. Do it in love, but preach it. And you might be sitting there saying, Cliff, I can't preach it because I'm not walking in it. Well, start praying, start walking in that direction, start preaching, and you watch God begin to confirm His Word because it's not your Word He's looking to confirm. He's looking to confirm His Word with signs and wonders following. And the question I always ask on this is, if there's no signs and wonders following, what kind of Word are you preaching? I'm sorry. 
but I'm not sorry. <laughs> Do you know how exciting it is when God backs up His word? I really want to encourage you with this. Read a lot, study a lot, but more than anything else, read this and preach out of this. Say, God's not backing up the word. Well, whose word are you preaching? Yours, the latest book you've read, or are you preaching this? Because if you start to preach this, he's going to honor this. He always honors his word. It never returns to him void. He's going to start to back it up. You're going to start to step out and you're going to start to believe. And and you may try once or twice and you may think nothing happens. I want to tell you to persist and persevere. The first few people that I prayed for that were on death's bed died. And that's great. You've gone in believing and they died. But I thank God I never stopped praying because sooner or later something broke and something changed and not everybody was dying. Some were starting to live. Some were starting to turn around. Some were starting to come out of hospital and some were getting a few more years added to their life. You've got to contend because if the devil can stop you in the beginning, oh, I tried it once and it didn't work. What do you mean you only tried once? We should put you in the Christian Hall of Fame as the person who tried once and nothing happened. Try again. Step out again. Believe again. Don't let the devil throw you off track. The third hallmark of a spiritual church. There are genuine evidence of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your life personally and in the gatherings. You know, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12 quickly. It's an amazing passage of Scripture, and I'd encourage you to read 12, 13, and 14, because if you don't have love, which is right in the middle of these two chapters on the gifts, then there's no point really in flowing in the gifts, because you're just going to end up hurting people. But Corinth was a city much like we have today in Australia and New Zealand. And Paul writes, and yes, there's a lot of things he covers in the letter, but he spends extensive time speaking about the gifts. Why? Because one of the things he says about the gifts is, yes, the gifts can be used in the marketplace, but the gifts are really there to edify and build up the local church. It's one of the key things that the gifts do. Why do we need to edify and build up the local church? Well, the culture is radically changing, and the church is going to need to stand in boldness. And one of the ways the church stands in boldness is by having the gifts released in their midst to bring strength to them and unify them and encourage them. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, and he says this from verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts or spirituals, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. If I passed the microphone around today and I asked you how many gifts are mentioned in that chapter and how do they operate, how many of us would have an answer to that? And it's the one thing that Paul says about these things, don't be ignorant. And I know for purposes of study, sometimes we dissect the gifts, but really they can all flow together and flow at different times. But you've got to have some level of understanding of what the gifts are and how they operate and how God wants to use you in them. You see, a lack of teaching on this has resulted in one-man bands or jack-of-all-trades. One of the most disappointing moments I had as a Christian was picking up someone from an airport, and it wasn't anyone that was here or part of the NCMI team. It was many years ago, and they were coming to minister at the church I was in, and I started to ask them some questions about this. 
And they turned around and they said to me, well, those are the trade secrets, Cliff. We can't really let you know how all of that works. And I was so disappointed and I thought to myself, surely the heart of God is to take every believer and take what you know and share it, that every believer can grow and be encouraged and operate and flow in the gifts. Verse 7 says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good or the profit of all. That word manifestation literally means this. It's a clearly visible, supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit. When the gifts are in operation, you won't walk out and say, I think they were, or maybe they were. You'll say, they definitely were. It's a visible Clearly visible, supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit. And it's been preached so often, this all brings glory to Jesus because it's His church. 1 Corinthians 14, the gifts are to build up the church, and that's really important. The fourth hallmark that I've written down here, and there'll be many and we won't get to all of them, is this was a persecuted church. And you say, wow, is that a hallmark of being spirit-filled? Yes, if you're spirit-filled, you're going to be persecuted. And I want to encourage you with this. We won't escape persecution. Have you seen what's happening in the world? The very things that used to be called evil are being called good and right. And when you get up and preach simple Bible truths, they are going to be looked at in a totally different light than what they were five, ten years ago. And that makes some people nervous. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't get nervous, you get bold. What happened in Acts chapter 4, we read some of it earlier, but what happened is they told them to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. So what did they do? They went and prayed. That's a novel idea. When we're facing a challenging situation, how about gathering the church to pray? Prayer still works. God still answers prayer. He wants to jump on Google. And the beautiful thing, and I won't, won't say this in the wrong way, but the, the, the good thing about COVID is there wasn't anybody to pick up the phone and say, so when this happened last time, you know, when the world went into lockdown last time, what did you do? Church leaders literally had to get back into the scriptures and back into fellowship with the Holy Spirit to find out what they needed to do in the place that they were. It's a good thing. So Acts chapter 4, don't preach in the name of Jesus. They gather the believers to pray. What happens is God shakes the building. You guys have got a nice building here. We don't really want it to shake. In New Zealand, we're known as the shaky islands, earthquakes. And I always say, I don't really, Lord, you can answer in other ways, but don't shake our buildings, please. We really don't want the buildings to shake. Then it says this, they were filled with what? Boldness. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and spoke the word of God boldly. Unless, I want to go as far as to say this, unless you are filled with the Spirit, I don't think you're going to make it in the days to come. And I certainly don't think you'll be effective in the days to come. When we've got to stand and make a stand for certain things and say, this is what God's word says. We do it in love, but we're not going to change his word based on what the culture says. You will faint it that day unless you are filled with the Spirit and he gives you the supernatural boldness to do that. 
And I really believe one of the great turnarounds that's going to come in this nation and other nations is people are going to see what the church really is and run from some of those lifestyles and say, I wonder if see it. I've seen solid marriages. I've seen how marriage can work and how they can raise kids and how it can actually be done right. I'm actually looking for that. And God's going to bring people out of brokenness, but we've got to be there in power to see them set free and come into healing and wholeness. The fifth thing, a church that, it's a church that understands the ways of the Holy Spirit. Look at how he's revealed to us in scripture and what those things mean. He's like, it's spoken of one of the symbols is wind. What does that mean? He's powerful, he's sovereign, he's spontaneous. There's water, there's oil, there's a dove. He's not a dove, but it says like a dove. But there's a, if you go and do a study on this, and this is a, a leadership time, go and do a study on all the ways that the Holy Spirit is revealed in Scripture, and then ask yourself, how does that relate to what we're doing today? The Scripture will clearly teach you, and then when the Holy Spirit begins to operate and move in your life, in your churches, and in your communities, you will clearly be able to identify some of the things that He's doing. One of the things He loves to do is bring joy. And I remember one Sunday we had, we had an outbreak of joy and someone got upset with it and said, there's too much emotionalism in our church. And I thought to myself, but your grumpy attitude, what's that? Surely that's emotionalism. <laughs> so your emotionalism's okay, but people actually getting set free and filled with joy, that's not okay. But we know it's okay because when we read the scriptures, we can see that that's who the Holy Spirit is and one of the things he does. And there's many others. These things should be manifest in our lives and churches. Number six, it's a praying church. Somewhere I read the other day that the average Christian prays between five and ten minutes a day. And most times it's not even in tongues or in the spirit. So let me throw this challenge out to you. As a believer, as a leader, how much time do you spend praying in the Spirit? It's a clear teaching from Scripture, and I think we've got to teach people again. This is not weird. It's not strange. It's biblical. It's there to edify you. It's there for you to pray in the perfect will of God. So many people say, I don't know how to pray in the perfect will of God. Get baptized in the Spirit and start to speak in tongues, and you will start to pray into the perfect will of God over your life and over your situation. You see, as a leader, you've got to lead this. You have a responsibility to lead your people this way, and it's not perfect. We're all growing, but we better start to aim at what Scripture aims at. And the last thing I'm going to say today, and then we're going to pray for some people now, it was a center for the gospel to go out. lot of great meetings, but the question we've got to ask ourselves at the end of the quote, great meeting, is did it result in people standing up and going out in boldness? Because when I see the Holy Spirit poured out, one of the things that happens is the believers rise up in boldness and they go out and they start to preach the gospel. It doesn't become a holy huddle where we just in the four walls do our own thing and we never do anything outside and we, you know, we have these quote amazing meetings, but you should stand up and you should want to go out there and be filled with boldness and the fire of God and ready to tell people about Jesus Christ. I don't see in the book of Acts many afternoon teas where we get an expert in to talk about how to manage your veggie garden. 
how to manicure your tomatoes. Come to the ladies' tea on Sunday afternoon and find out how. There'll be nice sandwiches and a cup of tea for you and a scone. I don't see that. I see the church gathering together in power and then rising up and wanting to take the gospel out. And look, what's the worst thing that can happen if you pray for someone and nothing happens? What's the worst thing that can happen? And you never know what's going to happen on the other side of that. I'll finish with one story. Years ago, I'm originally born in South Africa, and I remember standing, I just listened to, uh, uh, it would have been Marcus Herbert preach on stewardship, and I was a student, and so I decided from Monday, I'm going to start saving money, and I walked in with 20 rand, $20, and I stood in the bank queue. And I was ready to put my $20 into the account. And God says to me, the lady that's standing in front of you, give it to her. I thought, well, that can't be God. Marcus just preached on stewardship yesterday. That's definitely not God. And it was a long bank queue. And I sat through the queue and we were almost at the front. And I had the overarching urge to do it. So I just tapped her on the shoulder and I said to her, I'm so sorry. I don't even know what to say to you, but I need to give you this. And she turned around and she burst into tears. And it wasn't one of those little, like, a little weep and wipe a t-shirt. It was one of those that came from here. So I got so awkward, I just ran out the bank. I left it. (laughs) Eight months later, I'm house-sitting for someone in our church. And they said, a lady's going to arrive on Wednesday. She's come here to clean the house. Can you just let her in? And I opened the door when the, the doorbell went, and there stood someone and I looked at her and she looked at me and you know you have that moment where you've seen her you've seen each other before and then she pointed her finger and she said you you were the young man at the bank you I didn't quite know how to take that in the moment is this a good you or a bad you and she said no no it's all good and she said let me tell you the story she said I had 40 rand in my bank I had an option to pay my kids school fees or buy groceries I was going to withdraw the 40 rand. And I stood in the bank queue and I said, God, if you're alive and you love me, help me. She says, you step up and you give me 20 rand. She says, when you left me crying in the bank, another lady walked over to me, asked what the problem was, heard the story, took me to the ATM, drew out the other 20 rand. I paid my kids school fees and I went and bought groceries that day. And she actually ended up in the church, in Cornerstone. She ended up in Cornerstone Church for many years. So those responses, you don't know what God's going to do. And I believe that one time, God, let me see the end result to know that every time you step out, every time you're obedient, every time you take a leap of boldness, every time you do something, you don't know what God's done to that point and you don't know what God's going to do after that, but you've got to fill the part of the chain that he's asked you to fill and sow the seed that he's asked you to sow and then he does the rest. 